Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect workshop. At this time, all participants are in the listen-only mode. During the workshop, you will hear from our panel of expert speakers. We will allow time for questions and comments following the presentation. Instructions will be given at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star then zero on your touchtone telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I would like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Messner, Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Oh, thank you so much, Crystal, and I too would like to welcome everyone to today's Cancer Care program, focusing on veterans living with cancer. It's such an important topic, and it's one that we are really very honored to be providing today, this workshop. And uh, today's program is uh, supported by Bristol-Myers Squibb, and I really want to thank them for their support of the program today. And this is a collaborative effort also between Cancer Care and many other cancer organizations. And it really is because of that collaboration and your interest in the program today that we have so many of you on the call today. We have over 200 participants on the call today, and you come from all over the United States, from both uh, urban, rural, suburban, and frontier communities. And we also have international participants from New Zealand and Turkey, so it's a bit of a global call as well. We're delighted um, to have all of you on the call today and that you've chosen to spend this next hour with us to really focus in on living, uh, veterans living with cancer. And I want to begin by introducing our first speaker, and our first speaker is Dr. Jan Kamnadi. And Dr. Kamnadi is Instructor Hematology Oncology, Department of Internal Medicine, Dan L. Dukin Cancer Center, Baylor College of Medicine. And Dr. Kamnadi is going to be addressing an overview of veterans living with cancer in the context of COVID-19 and follow up with your healthcare team taking your treatment as prescribed. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Kamnadi. Hi, uh, thank you very much, Dr. Mesner, and thank you for the opportunity to to discuss this today and to, to answer any questions uh, that may arise. So I'm going to get right into it, uh, talking about um, COVID-19. As, uh, as was stated, I'm here in Houston, Texas, and if you've seen the news at all, uh, Houston seems to be uh, somewhat of an epicenter at this time with COVID growing. So it's very relevant to, to our patients here uh, at the local uh, Houston VA. Um, really, to me, COVID uh, touches uh, in cancer and living with cancer it touches on two aspects, um, one being safety and the other being the issue of support. So what are the, what are the safety concerns that we think about when we, when we think about COVID and cancer? There's treatment-related safety concerns. Is it safe to get surgery? Is it safe to get chemotherapy or immunotherapy or even radiation? Um, of course, also visit-related, as m many of you may have already experienced um, or have heard about a lot of uh, visits to both oncologists but also other medical professionals has turned to, to telehealth visits and I uh, there are some certainly some benefits to it but also some challenges in oncology in specific and then lastly also uh, emergency related safety concerns is it okay to go to the emergency room um, which is something that is definitely an important aspect of, of, of cancer care um, one question that I get from time to time from patients is whether we should postpone their therapy because of, because of COVID that's going on, and I generally don't recommend that. I think that uh, we don't know to what extent, how long do we need to postpone it. Uh, you know, a month ago, 
Houston seems to be doing better and now is doing much, much worse. And so we would be have waited a month and now things are worse than they were before. So in generally speaking, we haven't postponed it unless in very special uh, circumstances. Uh, has there been a treat? Has there been a change in the in the treatment regimens um, or the way that we have recommended treating patients? Um, in general, there hasn't. Though I will say that in certain contexts, like stage one lung cancer, certainly we have discussed uh, with our surgeons and our radiation oncologists that we would um, probably rather treat those patients with radiation rather than expose them to surgery and a lengthy hospital stay. Um, and then also, um, as you may or may not know, uh, the immunotherapy dosing regimens have actually now been changed by the FDA. Um, the uh, drug Keytruda, which was usually given every three weeks, can now be given every six weeks, which was partially extended, uh, or that, that decision was partially made because of COVID to allow patients not to have to come in as often. So there have been some changes though uh, mostly we we try to uh, feel that our practice is probably one of the medical practices that have changed the, the least. Um, so one question I think that definitely comes up that my question, my patients ask me a lot is, should COVID make you think twice about going to the ER? And especially here in Houston, I know this is a big uh, issue in many other parts of the country. It may not be uh, as dire of a situation, but certainly here we have seen a very sharp increase in, in uh, COVID patients. And so um, I think the general answer is if you feel that you need emergency medical care, you should not hesitate to go to the ER. Um, and I've certainly had personal um, experience as well as experience with my patients where um, a delay of, of fear of going to the ER has actually caused more complications than going to the ER itself and potentially getting exposed to COVID. So I think in in true emergency situation, you should never hesitate to go, but certainly discuss with your provider whether, you know, there is ability to, to call them um, and to kind of triage things before going to the ER um, right away. And then um, another, the last part of the of the safety discussion is how can patients protect themselves? And I think just like everyone else, uh, you should wear masks, um, you should practice social distancing, and, and excellent hand hygiene is a, is a very, very important part of protecting yourself. Um, one particular question that has come up with my veterans is whether or not um, they can meet with friends and family members who don't live with them. And uh, with the pandemic expanding here, I really try to discourage that as much as I don't like saying that because, uh, as I will discuss next, I think a support system is one of the most important parts of cancer care. I I do, I think that it is important that we can make telephone calls and at this point try to avoid contact with other people um, that are not living with us as much as possible because certainly there is a risk for exposure there. And and, uh, and and so, therefore, I think we should try to limit that as much as possible. So that brings me into the other, other aspect uh, of how COVID has impacted cancer care. And, I, uh, and this is one of my main, uh, my, my biggest pieces of advice that I give my patients to, to build a support team. Don't go through this yourself, uh, you know, whoever, your, your, your partners, your family, your friends, whoever are there, they're there to help you and you should accept that help. And so, and, and so to the, it's been very hard because a lot of those patients who usually bring someone with them to answer questions, to ask questions, um, to listen, 
uh, they are unable to do that. So what I've been doing is I've been um, doing uh, calling their um, their support group in uh, on the telephone on speakerphone while the patient is in the room with me, and I think it's worked out fairly well. It is not the same as in person, but I think it is very important that you ask your provider um, that you that you have that um, ability to call in and have that person listen in. And I think it, it's totally acceptable to do that, and I think it's important to do that. In addition, the support team members should be aware that they're caring for an at-risk population, and so therefore they need to try to cut back on their exposure to COVID as well. So if you happen to be a, a, a support member of someone with cancer, uh, that is amazing, and you're doing an amazing job, And but please keep in mind that you also need to try to limit your exposure uh, to COVID. Um, so the last thing that I will uh, focus on is, is the, the following up with your healthcare team and taking your treatment as prescribed. I think to me this is this is a very important thing, and I, and and the best way that I can uh, advice that I can give is ask questions, ask questions, ask questions, and have a support team member ask questions and notate the answers. There are I as an oncologist I I love getting questions from patients I love being able to give them explanations and the more information my patients know the better of a decision they can make for themselves and so yes we absolutely would like um, everyone to adhere to a specific treatment schedule and and they are developed and they are designed because of uh, studies that we have done, and we know that the best possible outcomes comes to this adherence. But we also know that life can get in the way sometimes. So it's okay to ask your provider and say, what what can be done? Can we do we can we change this because I have, you know, at, uh, we no longer have family functions and things like this to go to at this point in time. But maybe other obligations, and and I think there's a good communication that can be had there. Lastly, I will just say that I tell my patients that they and their support team are the captain of the ship, and I'm just here as a guide to guide them through, through the waters that are ahead. And so I'm just here to provide information, and the final decision on all of that is theirs. I, I highly recommend staying on, on, treatment, uh, on the treatment plan, and, and once they un understand the information behind it, they, they usually, uh, uh, my patients usually understand it as well and make that, make that a priority. So um, that's all I have for today, and thank you for, for listening. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Kamnadi. That was really extraordinary, and I have to say that um, what a wonderful way of setting the stage for today's program. I really identified so many important areas to consider, and I just really want to thank you. And I know there will be questions for you during the Q&A. Thank you so much. Thank you. And our next speaker is Dr. Joseph O'Donnell. Dr. O'Donnell is Emeritus Professor of Medicine, Department of Medicine, Emeritus Professor of Psychiatry, Department of Psychiatry, Geisel School of Medicine at Dartmouth, Norris Cotton Cancer Center. And Dr. O'Donnell is going to be addressing helpful hints in communicating with the healthcare team and healthcare providers and guidelines to prepare for telemedicine, telehealth visits with your healthcare team. It's really my great pleasure to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. O'Donnell. Thank you so much, Dr. Messner, and thank you. It's such an honor to be included in this very esteemed team uh, that's uh, actually doing this teleconference. Um, I have to uh, acknowledge uh, that this is such a huge change in medicine uh, that the COVID uh, epidemic has brought, and that telemedicine, which was really uh, not very um, you know, much used in the past, 
is now uh, seeing a huge, huge uh, um, use. And uh, the VA, uh, for a long time, had been a pioneer in doing telemedicine. And uh, it's had great equipment and great ambitions in the past. It really hadn't connected so well until now. The, the telemedicine had great uh, potential, uh, but it now is being used uh, trying to get its potential. I think uh, we all have to acknowledge that it's in its infancy, though, uh, but it's here to stay. Things are not ever going to be like they were in the past, and telemedicine is going to be part of the solution of the future going forward. And so what we have to do is we have to learn how to use it. And that's why it's going to be important for each of you who are using it to actually give feedback to the people about how it's working for you. Um, I just wanted to uh, talk about, you know, uh, what we teach about uh, as uh, the, the reasons for a visit. Uh, and uh, people say there's a three-part uh, reason uh, to have a visit. Um, uh, number one is to uh, make a connection with the patient. And rather than uh, some people call it taking a history, um, I, I like to call it an interview with those words being really important that we're looking into you as the patient about what really matters to you, and you're looking into us to see, can you trust us? Do you believe what we say? Uh, is he really uh, trying to have my best interest in mind? So think about an interview and uh, making a connection as, a, as the first part of the interview. The second part of the interview is to gather information, what's going on with you, um, you know, uh, what's good, what's bad, what are your worries, and the third thing is to give advice. Uh, and so uh, as you prepare for a visit, and one of the uh, sort of things I'm going to say uh, as an important thing to do is the preparation uh, for a telemedicine visit um, should be, you should do a lot of preparation for, for a visit. And, and actually I hope that morphs over into when there are more in-person visits, you do the same thing. And uh, with the first part of the visit, um, the making connection, um, I would I would like to uh, say, well, first of all, that medicine has evolved now uh, to something called co-production of care. And in that co-production of care, the voice of the patient, the voice of the patient's loved ones uh, is as important as the voice of the physician. It's not the doctor says to do this, um, uh, the patient wants to do this. It's how do we negotiate together to do what we really want to do. And in doing that, I think it's important that the, that the doctors or the providers get to know uh, what do you want them to know about you. And uh, the way I suggest uh, you start this out is by uh, spending some time thinking about what really matters to me. What is the stuff that's really important to me that I want to get in, in, across uh, to the people taking care of me? And, you know, it might be stuff like, I want to make sure that on August 15th, when my daughter is getting married, that I'm in good shape. Or I want to make sure that, that we're okay to go on our vacation on in October. So we want to arrange our chemotherapy that. Or I want to make sure I have my my appointments on a Friday because I I I do better when I have the weekend to recover uh, or whatever. You know, you can decide what are the stuff that's really important to me, and then um, start out uh, with that. Now, when it gets to the gathering information, it's well known that, that most patients come into an interview uh, having at least three issues. And uh, often it's the third one uh, that's the, the 
sometimes the toughest, toughest to get out. You know, uh, uh, people sometimes call it the doorknob conversation. You're at the doorknob getting ready to go, and and somebody will say to you, Doc, I want to tell you about this chest pain I have, too. And um, so uh, think of what are the issues that you want to um, get out uh, and make sure they're addressed during the time you're there. The other thing about doctors, unfortunately, is they tend to interrupt without listening. And the average interruption comes about 18 seconds into the interview. So see if you can work to get your your uh, issues out so that people can listen to you and um, prioritize them. And often the one that's maybe hardest to come out uh, is the one that's most important to you. So so let's let the doctor know what to do. Now, the way we tend to look at symptoms is we, we, um, we tend to uh, put some dimensions around them. So uh, if you have pain, for instance, we ask, what's the onset? Uh, what's the quality of it? How long does it last? Where does it, come, where does it begin and go to? Where does it radiate to? What makes it better? What makes it worse? And are there any other symptoms associated with it? For instance, uh, I, doctor, I have a pressure that develops in the center of my chest uh, that happens when I walk up hills. Uh, it lasts for about a minute and goes away when I sit down and rest or I take a nitroglycerin pill. Um, sometimes it, it radiates to my arm, my left arm or my jaw. Uh, it gets worse if I keep doing what I'm doing. Uh, and sometimes when I have it, I'm short of breath and have nausea. Now, the doctor would know that that's, um, that's uh, angina, that's uh, uh, angina pectoris, heart cardiac pain. Well, now you can think about the symptoms you have um, with a cancer, and uh, basically the stuff that are going to be asked at the visit are going to be things the doctor wants to know, how are you doing in general, uh, and what symptoms might be related to the cancer? Are they better? Are they worse? and what symptoms may be related to the therapy. So if you can be prepared by thinking about, um, you know, what, what are the, the symptoms that one has, and, and signs, too. Signs of things like, suppose I have a palpable lymph gland in my neck, uh, and I can feel it myself. Is it getting smaller or bigger? Or if I have a cancer uh, in the uh, lung and it causes some pain in my chest, is, it getting, is the pain getting better or worse? And so those are all things uh, to sort of get across to the doctor as they gather information. Um, and you've got to make sure that you address anything that's, that's on your mind that worries you in that visit and prepare by doing that. So as you prepare, uh, what, I, what I suggest to do is if you have equipment at home, uh, have that uh, present in front of you as you're going to be doing the visit. Uh, equipment might be um, a blood pressure monitor. Uh, something, sometimes a flashlight would be important. A phone that might be able to take a picture of a rash or, or something like this. Your medicine list, uh, have that in front of you. And before you go, you have to visit, I might suggest you do things like take your weight, take your temperature. If you can monitor your blood pressure, get your blood pressure. And you have those all available to give to the, um, to the person who's on the other end of the telemedicine visit. Now, uh, you should go in a quiet place. And especially for that third part of the, of the, um, of the visit, which is uh, giving advice, the, the provider giving advice, I would suggest you have somebody with you 
to take notes because often that information comes so fast and furious and you can't remember it uh, two minutes after you leave the room. So if you have somebody with you that can take notes about what are the things that um, uh, people suggest, uh, that the doctor suggests that you do. Um, now, there are a lot of questions you can answer. Um, you know, uh, for instance, are there any other services they can provide me while I'm far away from the hospital uh, that would, would be helpful to me? What can I do for myself? Um, you know, one of the things to remember about a cancer, even in, in its most advanced stages, that 99.99% of the cells in your body are healthy cells, and one of your jobs is to take care of the healthy cells. And the best way to do that often is with good nutrition and sleep and exercise and things like this, a good attitude. And those are important things that you can do for yourself or that your family can help you do. That's the other thing is the family and the caregivers are people that are very much in the equation. And we should, when we're talking to you, uh, find out how they're doing too. And if there's anything else they need, uh, that would help uh, do the, um, you know, do the job that you, you have to take your vet, uh, take take uh, take care of you. Um, you know, the other thing that that available in terms of services, the VA has a number of really good um, sort of apps that can be used. For instance, for mental health, um, or bio, you know, or uh, uh, meditation, or or mindfulness, and things like this that can be really helpful um, and and try and decrease the worry one has about uh, cancer. And they also have unbelievable programs of nutrition and other things that we'll, we'll hear about later. But um, remembering that three-part thing of how do they get to know you, uh, how do uh, you tell what your symptoms and signs are, and then how do you uh, make sure you get the advice that they, they want to do, want to get give to you. Now, one other question I think it's always important to ask the person you're talking to is, um, who, who's on your team, and how I, how best do I communicate with them uh, about anything that comes up that I didn't that I forgot to talk about in this call, or it happens in you know in between visits or whatever? And you know the VA has a great system, uh, a, a, a communication system that can, you can um, communicate with your provider and their team, and especially the nurses that are involved with the team are very helpful. And you can tell them these are the things I'm worried about today. And so you can keep in good communication and you don't feel alone or lost. Now, uh, some of the things that the providers will tell you is it's time for the next round of chemotherapy and this is the way we're going to do it and this is the way to be safe. And uh, so take all that information in and, um, you know, uh, and, uh, and record it and uh, do what they say. And if you have any questions, make sure you're able to have the system to, to communicate back with them to say, I forgot what you said about this. What should I do? What entrance do I go in? Uh, you know, what, where, uh, where uh, do I get my blood drawn? Uh, and uh, things like that. So, um, so remember this, and I think the key thing is preparation and, um, and, uh, and making sure you're sort of uh, thinking like they think and so you're able to provide them information that's important to them. So thank you. Oh, well, thank you very much, Dr. O'Donnell. That was really outstanding and really a phenomenal uh, talk, actually, in terms of just the whole communication piece and um, the preparation and being sure that you right away let your healthcare team know what is 
troubling you, and also at the very end, finding out who you can call when you, if you have a problem, who you can, who on the team can re- respond to your questions. So um, I thank you, and I know there'll be questions for you during the Q and A as well. So thank you very much. And our next speaker is Dr. Maria Bishop. Dr. Bishop is Professor of Medicine, University of Arizona Cancer Center, Program Director, Hematology Oncology Section, VA, VAMC, and she is Chair, Southern Arizona VA Healthcare System Ethics Committee. And Dr. Bishop will be addressing an overview and definition of fatigue and evaluation and treatment of fatigue. It's really my great pleasure to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Bishop. Thank you, Dr. Messner. Hello, everyone. It is a pleasure to join you today. And Dr. Messner, thank you so much for the invitation and the opportunity to take part in this call and join the other presenters. Today, I will be speaking with you about fatigue. I will share some comments about how we evaluate fatigue and how we treat it. Now, fatigue can be defined in many ways. The American Cancer Society describes fatigue as when your body and brain feel tired and you don't have enough energy to do the things that you need or want to do. Another definition of fatigue is from the National Comprehensive Cancer Network. This network is often referred to as NCCN. The NCCN guidelines define cancer-related fatigue as a distressing, persistent, subjective, sense of physical, emotional, and or cognitive tiredness or exhaustion related to cancer or cancer treatment that is not proportional to recent activity and interferes with usual functioning. Important to recognize is that cancer-related fatigue can occur as a side effect of cancer and its treatment. And it is not often an isolated symptom and it can occur with other signs and symptoms, such as pain, anemia, and sadness or depression. Fatigue should be evaluated at regular intervals. For example, your healthcare provider may address fatigue at your initial visit, during your visit, and following therapy as clinically indicated. If you have concerns about fatigue, what should you consider before your healthcare provider's appointment? And this follows very nicely after Dr. O'Donnell's presentation, and I have similar comments when your appointment is geared towards your concern about fatigue. And during the COVID-19 pandemic at our VA there has, and at our university, there has been an increase in the use of telemedicine and telephone clinic appointments. Uh, your healthcare provider, whether it's at a face-to-face appointment or during your telemedicine or telephone clinic appointment, might ask you about the onset of fatigue. Was it abrupt or gradual? How does it relate to your illness or treatment? What is the course of your fatigue? Is it stable, improving, getting worse? What is the duration? Does it have a pattern throughout the day? What and how does the impact of fatigue have on your family and caregiver? And how has fatigue affected the things that bring meaning to your life? A focused history can help identify the cause of fatigue. We treat 
the underlying cause of fatigue when possible. So let me share with you some treatable causes of fatigue and things that your healthcare providers may address with you. Anemia or decrease of your red blood cells uh, can cause fatigue. So can emotional distress, such as depression and anxiety. Other treatable contributions to fatigue are pain. And uh, we look at pain in a very holistic approach. Our physical pain, psychological pain, and spiritual pain. And to thoroughly treat pain, we must address all aspects of pain that are affecting our patients. Recognizing that both pain itself and the treatment can cause fatigue. For example, opioids are very effective in treating some pain, but they can cause fatigue. Electrolyte imbalances, such as abnormal sodium levels, potassium levels, or calcium levels, and lack of oxygen can cause fatigue. Uh, perhaps you, uh, you have an infection or a history of chronic obstructive pulmonary disease. Medications can cause fatigue, uh, for example, blood pressure medicines. Sleep disturbances, insomnia, or obstructive sleep apnea can uh, cause fatigue, as well as infections. And other health problems, such as problems with your kidneys, liver, heart, and endocrine systems, such as diabetes and hypothyroidism. So following an evaluation of underlying causes of anemia, what are some treatment approaches? So usually divide this into non-pharmacologic and pharmacologic. So non-pharmacologic is the treatment that does not use drugs. An exercise program is very important. And it's um, important to plan this with your healthcare provider that's appropriate uh, for your state of health. And in this time of the COVID-19 pandemic, keeping in mind social distancing, how you can still exercise but be safe. Energy conservation efforts are very important. And uh, I'd like to follow up on the comment, ask for help. Um, accept help, schedule activities when your energy level is the best. And assistive devices can be very useful, such as can openers, reaching um, uh, instruments so you can grasp items out of reach, carts to transport items, taking escalators when you're, you're fatigued. Physical therapy and occupational therapy can be very helpful. A nutrition consult to maximize your nutrition could also be very beneficial. And pain management. Uh, pain management can be treated with medications, but there's also other uh, modalities, such as radiation therapy, which is very effective. And another important uh, aspect to consider is to improve the quality of your sleep. Pharmacologic interventions pain management, treat underlying anemia, uh, times packed red blood cell transfusions are important, and correct electrolyte imbalances. In summary, cancer-related fatigue is one of the most common side effects of cancer and its treatment. 
an important question to consider is, how has it affected the things that bring meaning to your life? But most important, there is hope that treatment approaches will help to improve fatigue and help you enjoy the things that bring meaning to your life. Thank you. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Bishop. That was really outstanding. And and really uh, highlighting fatigue as being really the as so many other things being connected to it and having a plan and working with the team to work, work things out um, so that one can enjoy one's life. That is so beautifully put by you. So thank you. I know there will be questions for you during the Q&A, but just a, a wonderful presentation. Thank you. And our next speaker is Ms. Diana Bearden. And Ms. Bearden is a oncology dietitian with the Michael E. DeBakey VA Medical Center. Um, and Ms. Bearden will be addressing nutrition and hydration concerns and tips. And she had a very nice follow-up to Dr. Bishop's comments about nutrition. So I'm going to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Ms. Bearden. Thank you so much, Carolyn. I'm excited to be part of today's presentation. Um, and yes, Dr. Bishop, I, I loved your comprehensive um, talk that really brought in all aspects as well um, related to physical therapy, occupational therapy, sleep. All of those things are so important to think about because um, nutrition is part of that, but we're more than just nutrition. We're, we're a whole person. So we have to remember that we have to keep everything supported. So I really appreciated those thoughts. Um, so nutrition and hydration are key to tolerance to your treatment and providing you the energy to do the things you enjoy because quality of life is very important. Um, nutrition plans will vary from patient to patient. There's a few unique things about the veteran population. They're very um, close-knit, and they really um, are – when I walk out in the lobby, there's a lot of folks communicating with each other, supporting each other. There's a lot of camaraderie. And so um, you may l learn from another patient something different that they're going through, and and it may look different from what you're going through. And so um, our role as your healthcare providers are to make treatment plans that are um, unique to you and unique to your needs. And so it's so important that um, you communicate that to us. Um, we, we really rely on you to be our, our information source for how we can help you. As Dr. Kim Nadi mentioned, we're, we're part of the team. We're here for information and support, and we need to hear from you what you need so we can best support you. So all members of your healthcare team um, want to know how they can help support you. There are a lot of fabulous resources in the VA um, that are designed to help all sorts of different conditions patients are going through. Um, what I do see a lot in my veteran population is a lot of different comorbidities. They may have cancer. They may be dealing with diabetes. They may be dealing with heart disease or renal disease. And so your nutrition plan is going to be designed based on what your unique needs are. There are also some social challenges that can come up in our population, and that's an important thing for your healthcare team to know. As a dietitian, um, if I'm working with somebody who is um, going through cancer treatment and I know that that cancer treatment is going to increase their fatigue and the side effects of the treatment that they may go through is going to interfere with their nutrition, I need to understand what's going on at home. Um, tell us if you're, if you're a soul, uh, if you're living by yourself and if you have support. 
um, how the VA has a lot of resources for in-home support related to um, uh, going to the grocery store, preparing foods in the home. Um, so we need to know if you need that so I can help coordinate that with our social worker and the physician. Our goal, nutrition-wise, is to meet your nutrition goals, nourishing your body, um, avoiding significant weight changes. Occasionally, I'll talk to a patient, and um, they feel, oh, I've, I've been carrying a little bit more weight. I, I have weight to lose. I'm not, I'm not worried about that. I'm, I'm going to be okay. I have plenty of weight on me. And what I understand, because I see patients go through treatment, is that um, you know, there's a lot of misunderstanding about weight and nourishment. You can actually become malnourished and still be overweight. And so please use the resources your healthcare team um, work to help provide to you. Um, we want to have you be successful through your treatment. If you do lose weight and it becomes significant, most of the time you're going to lose lean muscle mass. And we have a lot of very independent people in our population. And the, the challenge when you lose muscle mass is that you also become more fatigued. You're at higher risk of falling. You're not going to heal as quickly from wounds and as efficiently from wounds. And it can impact your treatment. It may result either in a break in treatment or a delay in treatment. Um, and so nutrition is very important. And um, understanding that you're nourishing your body through this. Important things to know is that protein is very important for muscle mass and healing tissue. Calories are very important for weight maintenance, and hydration helps everything go. So those three major components when we talk about nutrition are the things I want you to understand and, and ask about. Ask your health team about those. Ask the healthcare team about those. Um, just remember that it's a challenging time, but we can help you through it. We can give you suggestions based on your side effects. Um, if necessary, there's oral supplements we can provide, the VA provides. Um, but knowing that we're just wanting to get you through treatment and get you out um, as healthy as possible. I do just want to touch briefly on hydration. Side effects of hydration actually... Uh, or dehydration are very, very, very important to know. It can increase nausea, fatigue. You can start feeling dizzy, have headaches, become constipated with dehydration. And remember that fluid is anything that's liquid at room temperature, so water, milk, soft drinks. In general, most people need about 80 ounces of fluid a day. When you're not eating well and you're not feeling well, you're usually not drinking well. And so this is something that I, I wanted to bring to um, the conversation because it can get left off the radar sometimes. As you're going through your treatment, your nutrition plan can change. Please take note, write it down, whatever you can do. There's a lot of, we just heard a little earlier about apps and communication through the computer, My Healthy Vet, emailing, calling the, the healthcare provider, keeping a record of how you respond to food and how you feel, maybe why you're not eating. Bring that information with you to your appointment. It will help us help you better. And remember, asking to speak with members of your healthcare team is always an option. Um, you can always ask to speak with a dietitian on your team, and they will be happy to meet with you and help you be successful um, with your nutrition plan. 
Uh, I, I want to close it with that and hand the line back over to Carolyn. Oh, thank you so much, Ms. Durden. That was really excellent, really outstanding, and just such important tips for people. Um, so I, I thank you very much. And I know there will be questions for you during the Q&A as well. And our next speaker is Dr. Luisa Dorazos. Dr. Dorazos is a psychosocial coordinator for oncology and palliative care. She is an oncology social worker, and she's a community and social services VA New York Harbor Healthcare System Brooklyn campus. And uh, Dr. Dorazos will be addressing coordinating doctor visits, transportation, and daily schedules, suggestions to overcome barriers in coordinating care in different healthcare settings, and finding and using practical resources, including veteran-specific resources. It's really my pleasure to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Dorazos. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Um, so I'll jump right in um, and apologize in case there's some overlap between um, what I say and what other um, presenters have said or will say. But um, So we'll start with coordinating doctor visits. Um, overall, I think if I had to say one thing that would help, um, that'll help patients and families immensely is to have a calendar, whether you use an electronic one or, um, you know, an old a uh, paper calendar um, or an app so that you can see your visits easily. The schedule will help you um, remember all your treatment-related activities. It can find um, not really gaps, but where things are supposed to be scheduled. You know, we'll do this in three weeks. Sometimes um, somebody might tell you, and so you can keep on track with, um, with the medical team about when that time is. So, and, and, you know, naturally in the context of um, doctor visits, you know, people often ask you questions about your treatment. When was your last MRI? And it'll help a lot to remind them, my last MRI was, you know, three months ago, for example. Um, so so that's, that's one big overall tip. Um, because after all, a visit, whether it's um, through the video or on telephone or face-to-face, it's about an exchange of information and communication. Um, the other thing I'm going to sort of turn to is pay attention to, to your body, what your body tells you about you, because um, your stamina. It's not just that an appointment is scheduled for a particular time, and I'm thinking more of in-person vis visits, but, um, you know, it's, it's also um, up to us as patients to find out what's required ahead of time in preparation for the appointment. You know, do you have to eat if it's a matter of taking a test or not eat? Or do you take medication or not take medication? Um, these are the common questions, and no matter how experienced you think you are as a, as a medical consumer or as a patient, um, it, you know, these questions always come up for us, and the more you do it, the, the more the more you're a patient, I think, the more you start to really want to be adherent. And, um, and so anything that's unclear, it's really a, a good idea to clear up, the, um, clear up what, what's not clear for you right away. Um, the things that we don't think about as providers, I think, is how much time is it going to take for you to get dressed and out of the house? I mean, that's part of the appointment time. Um, those factors can also help you recognize how many appointments you can handle in a given day. 
um, if you have the stamina, then I'd certainly encourage you to try and um, bundle your appointment so that um, so that you don't have to um, get out of the house as much if that's a problem for you. Um, but definitely, I mean, I can certainly speak for uh, my VA colleagues. I encourage you to feel comfortable asking about whether or not you can have, you know, appointments scheduled on the multiple appointments on the same day. Um, but if your stamina is not as good as you'd like it to be, maybe spacing them out is a better option. Um, and of course, I mean, it, it, I think it goes across the board um, now with COVID for all medical systems, not just the VA, that there are video and telephone options. And um, a lot of times we're finding, this is all new territory for all of us, but the, the video and telephone visits are actually um, good choices for a lot of things. So I'm going to turn now to transportation. And um, Cancer Care, of course, has its transportation grant, which has been a wonderful resource for so many years. Um, some cancer centers I'm talking about in the non-VA world um, do, give, do have some kinds of transportation programs. It's really on a site-by-site um, -site basis. They may, have, um, they may give out gas cards. Things have been going a little bit differently because of COVID. You know, you're not finding um, offers of rides so much anymore. But there are things available, um, but it's very location-specific. Um, depending on where you live, too, municipalities may have travel systems for seniors and people with special needs. So here in New York City, we have Assessoride, which provides rides to people on treatment, on, on cancer treatment. And they have been very flexible um, and good um, now with the COVID-19 pandemic. Some managed Medicare and Medicaid plans also have travel as a benefit, so you need to connect with your plan literature to see if that's offered to you. And veterans who use the VA in certain um, situations, this is um, really something that you need to discuss with your um, oncology social worker, whether, um, whether there would be a travel benefit for you. Um, I'm going to switch now to daily schedules. Um, I often tell my patients, especially those starting radiation treatment, that um, those who are retired, that being on treatment is a little bit like having a job again. Um, you do need to pay attention, obviously, to appointment times. Um, of course, there's your medication schedule, um, time to, you know, um, to either get people to, to do chores for you or how you're going to organize your chores, um, depending on your stamina. Um, so things that take up time like shopping and cooking, um, you need to factor in in a different way than uh, before you came to have your cancer diagnosis or go on treatment. Um, it's also very helpful to schedule um, times just to rest. In a, you know, just to relax, um, paying attention to your sleep hygiene and whatever physical movement or exercise you can come up with in consultation to your medical team, of course. But then there's the subtle self-care um, that tends to go out the window, um, and I'm going to ask you to think about. Is there a time when you can do something 
enjoyable just for you. And it can be as simple as watching a TV show that always makes you laugh, you know, putting on some relaxing music, having a telephone call with a good friend. And can and so I'm going to throw out to you, can you be curious to find a little routine that helps you feel like you again, um, even if it's for five or ten minutes during the day? Um, and maybe if that works, maybe you can, you know, set up another routine or another routine. I've heard um, I've heard it uh, discussed that there are some people decide to spend, to devote, um, just like people devote time during the day when they turn off their electronic devices, can you spend a little time every day where um, you've done all your due diligence as far as taking care of yourself medically, um, can you just take cancer out of the calendar for, for a half hour during the day? Um, and it takes practice, but some people find this a very helpful technique um, in self-care. So I'm going to switch now to suggestions to overcome barriers in coordinating care with different healthcare settings. And um, that nowadays, um, if you hopefully you access the medical center's various apps. Of course, in the VA, it's called My Healthy Vet. But um, if you belong to another medical system, you know, or medical network that has uh, several hospitals, you know, they may encourage you to use an app related to their medical system. And um, one of the things that they usually include in these apps is um, a place for all the doctors involved in your care um, to know who you're working with. So. Um, you know, if you have a non-network doctor, you could still put that individual's uh, name and contact information in. So this way, everybody knows your internist is, you know, Dr. Smith. Um, and um, and that's, that really helps foster communication. Now, within the VA, um, and also in cooperation with um, some community settings, there's um, a thing called the Veterans Health Information Record so that um, when a, a veteran uses the VA and uses um, non-VA doctors, there's, um, there's this, I won't call it a special medical record, but this VHIE actually is a medical record where um, all providers can access your medical information, obviously with your um, consent and approval. Um, but it's called VHIE, and it's kind of the new um, uh, wave with regard to a unified medical record. Um, otherwise, uh, the you know good old-fashioned way is if you're using different healthcare providers, is to make sure that you sign releases of information, and um, and agree to you know a free exchange among the um, the people who provide you healthcare. So that you know, if you get an MRI in one location, they get the report. Um, you know, if you have blood results or you're using the VA for medication, um, but not for your regular oncology care. Um, I know we do that a lot here in um, in the New York Harbor system. Um, our doctors are very willing to exchange information, obviously with your permission, you know, and consult um, so that the care feels seamless to you. 
I'm going to switch to um, my last topic for today, which is finding and using practical resources, including veteran-specific resources. Um, I'm going to definitely put a plug into connecting with an oncology social worker who can um, um, who can help you search for resources appropriate to your specific situation. There are a host of rules and regulations um, regarding when somebody is qualified to get something like home care because of a medical condition. Um, but there are many, many, many organizations and agencies, whether they're national or statewide or, or very local to your community, which may have resources which you can use. Um, with veterans, you're all familiar with the veteran service organizations, and I think there are like over 200 of them, the ones that are most readily um, recognized are American Legion, Disabled American Veterans, um, Veterans of Foreign Wars, and there's, like I said, many, many, many others, and they're, they're all good. So they have, um, obviously, local chapters and websites, and uh, they're either at the chapter level or the websites or their publications are all great places to find out what's happening in your area and whether or not there are um, specific um, resources which you can use. Um, also, all levels of government have agencies devoted to veterans' issues, and again, you can connect with them either through their web pages or um, another good place to um, find out what's happening is um, in social media, if you subscribe to their pages, you know, if you have Facebook or Twitter um, or Instagram, they, you know, everybody is all over the place. And the VA itself uses social media to let people know what resources and events um, are happening, um, again, on, you know, many levels. So being connected with your local VA as, you know, we subscribe to their Facebook page, as well as um, various, um, well, the three divisions of the VA, Veterans Benefits, Veterans Healthcare, and the National Cemetery Administration is a great way to familiarize yourself with helpful information. Um, and I mean, the information is so vast that it's, it's really too big to go into here, but um, they, they just have fantastic materials um, and, and different ways of being able to understand what might be appropriate to you. So there are videos, there are pamphlets, um, um, and, and, you know, news releases and questions, little fact sheets. So, um, you know, that's something that certainly an oncology social worker can help you access to see what, what may apply. And um, I look forward to your questions, and, and I'll pass for now. Thank you so much. Um, and, uh, Mr. Dr. Adratzos, that excellent, really very comprehensive presentation. And our next speaker is Ms. Georgie Kusak. Um, she is an oncology nurse, Director of Education and Patient Safety, Office of the Clinical Director, National Heart, Lung, and Blood Institute, Adjunct Nurse Leader, Nursing Research and Translational Science, Clinical Center, National Institutes of Health. And I'm going to actually turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, uh, Ms. Kusak, who will be addressing some brief self-care tips for veterans living with cancer and their loved ones. Um, and it's my pleasure to turn this over to my esteemed colleague, Ms. Kusak. Thank you, Dr. Mesner, and I appreciate the 
ability to be on the call today, and I thank you to everyone who's on the call today. So I'm just going to go over a couple tips around um, stressors on caregivers when you're coordinating care, including long-distance caregivers, and then go over briefly um, just some of the self-care tips that you can do to yourself. So again, we are in unprecedented times right now and really need to be able to think creatively in terms of helping our family members to be able to cope during the COVID-19 and with cancer in general. It's hard to be socially distant right now, and as you heard from our other colleagues, um, you know, we do need to be able to, to take precautions in that. There are certain things you can do to protect yourself and your family member. Again, keeping hand sanitizer with you at all times, washing your hands thoroughly after caring for your loved one or if you are the loved one, just having that available um, also. The big thing to remember with hand sanitizer is you want at least 60% alcohol in it. And once you place it on your hands, you need to make sure you're rubbing your hands until the sanitizer is completely dry so that it is effective when it's working. When we talk about uh, family members and friends and traditions and visiting and things like that, you want to have your family members, if they are going to visit, make it for a shorter period of time. They want to, You want them to be wearing a mask when visiting and washing their hands and maintaining that six feet in social distancing. We have found that that really does work in terms of preventing. If they're having any symptoms whatsoever, you want to not have them visit um, at that particular time because cancer patients do have a decreased immune system um, getting treatment or not getting treatment at this point. And so you want to just make sure. You know, I've had friends that um, have had cancer and they've just had kind of drive-by things where, you know, the where the family member can sit outside and people can just kind of drive by, just things to let them know that they're thinking about it. They can also um, do, we can do Zoom calls or if you have technology to be able to do that or just use some of those other things to do that. Um, you can assign friends to coordinate meals if you are the main um, caretaker. Sometimes people don't know how to be helpful during this time, so they appreciate when you give them something to do. There's a lot of literature out there on uh, kindness and how to make others feel good um, in being helpful, so remember that you're doing them a favor also because a lot of times they don't know what to do to help out with that. As a long-distance caregiver, you want to be able to stay in touch with the local caregivers and loved ones that have cancer. You want to be willing to assist with difficult topics, maybe such as finances or living wills, things like that. Don't underestimate your role as a, as a long-distance caregiver because it is considerable. You can help with coordinating medical appointments. You can help um, family members and friends with communicating with um, other people. You can set up things like Caring Bridge, which is a free website um, to give updates for family members at the end of the day. Sometimes you may be the person to track paperwork or bills or things like that. Or you can also coordinate local transportation and prescription refills and things like that. Um, when we talk about like holidays and special times, I'll refer you to a couple of websites. The um, National Cancer Institute has a great website uh, for caregivers, as does Cancer Care, as does the American Cancer Society. And Dr. Benzer will send out those um, those actual websites at the end of the call. But for yourself, you want to make sure that you're staying healthy, you're eating a balanced diet. If you are the caregiver, you want to make sure that you yourself take time out to be able to take care of yourself, even if that means, again, going for a walk for like a 30-minute walk or just doing a meditation session or getting in exercise and things like that. Um, again, the healthy diet is important with that also. You want to make sure that you make simple plans and then just pace yourself to be able to help your loved one. Again, if you get sick, you're not going to be able to help your loved one, so you need to think about that. 
Um, again, I'll refer you to the websites. If you're someone that um, uh, uses spirituality, you want to seek out your local church or pastoral services, um, prioritizing sleep is a is a great thing to do. And you can do things like journaling just to um, express your own feelings because it's really hard sometimes when you're trying to help out taking care of someone and you want to be, again, healthy for them. So um, I'm not going to go over anything else because I um, uh, am cognizant of the time. So, But just remember that you are an important member of the healthcare team. You need to take care of yourself so that you can better take care of the patient. It's been a pleasure to participate in the conference, and I'll turn it back over to Dr. Ambassador. I'm happy to entertain any questions. Thank you. Well, thank you so much. Uh, thank you so much, Ms. Kusek. That was wonderful, really outstanding uh, presentation. And we now do have time for questions. And um, before we take questions, I'm just going to say a few words about Cancer Care Services, and then we'll take questions. Um, Cancer Care is a national organization, um, and we provide uh, free programs to people living with uh, cancer veterans living with cancer, and those services include both practical and financial assistance and support services, and we have a number of different types of financial assistance programs, um, primarily for people in the United States. Um, however, if you do have concerns from different parts of the world as well, please do contact Cancer Care, you can call our Hope Line at 1-800-813-4673 or visit our website at www.cancercare.org. Perhaps most importantly is just the range of services we offer, um, very comprehensive, um, very comprehensively covered on our website, and our oncology social workers are here. They're all master's level trained to help you with your your practical financial assistance and any concerns you may have and also your need for support, which we've heard throughout the program is so very important to access support. So um, now with that being said, we now have time for questions. I'm going to ask uh, uh, Crystal if she would bring our speakers on board and we'll take just a few of your questions. Um, so Crystal. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to ask a question, please press star then one on your touchstone telephone. If your question has been answered and you wish to remove yourself from the queue, you may press the pound key. Those of you on the web may submit questions by clicking Ask a Question. Again, ladies and gentlemen, to ask a question, please press star, then one. So I have a question from one of our um, online participants. Um, so um, the question about um, the televisits on the phone, Dr. O'Donnell, could you comment on that? Um, because uh, person was saying they feel a bit challenged with technology. So um, how about televisits on the phone? Well, you know, the, the VA has actually been a, a pioneer on telephone visits, too. And um, I think that uh, um, though there's actually not any data that says the in-person, you know, the, 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 the view, the, the picture is gives you any more information, uh, except in cases like dermatology where you're looking at a, a rash or things like that, than a telephone conversation. So um, using the telephone and just being really clear with what you want to get out of it, what your questions are, uh, is as effective as using, um, as using the, the, um, tele, you know, the screen, the, the video, too. And it's something uh, that, that actually should be used even more, I think. Excellent. Thank you. Um, and a question for um, Ms. Bearden. Um, what is a good way to get nutrition on a liquid diet? 
um, if you are tired of nutritional shakes? Mm, this is a great question. Um, I actually get asked this quite a bit because um, with a lot of different cancers, the texture modification is a big component when it comes to nutrition. Um, there, actually, there's a great resource out there. I really, really have uh, enjoyed using it with patients. It's called Dinner Through a Straw. And they sell it on Amazon. You can buy it at a used bookstore. Um, and it is written by patients um, who've had oral surgeries. And they're, they've come up with some very creative ways to make your favorites. I mean, there's something for pizza in there. Obviously, it's a modified ingredient, but it tastes like pizza. Um, and then I always remind patients that if you're on a liquid diet, try to just cook your regular food using, you know, to add moisture, don't use water because it'll dilute it. It'll take a lot of the flavor away. But use beef stock, chicken stock, vegetable stock. And if there's a component in the recipe, maybe like if you're making tacos and um, and tortillas aren't going to work in the blender very well, what you can do is moisten like um, uh, moisten, put everything else in there, moisten it with some beef stock and the seasonings that you'd normally use. And that way, if you even have to strain it, that's okay too. I have a lot of patients where they have to just be really careful of particles. But if you can blend it, some of these b- bullet machines and um, Vivanex, all, all these are, um, or Vitamix, excuse me, these are really powerful. There's a lot of them on the market now, and they can pretty much obliterate anything into a, a liquid texture. So I would say looking at the, I love the resource dinner through a straw because it's so, it's written by patients and it's, it's, they, it, the recipes are, are, I think, good. And then, of course, using your own food, regular food, blending it up, using a good powered blender, and keeping that flavor by not watering it down with water, but rather using some of the stocks instead. That's very good. Thank you very much. And also, a last question then um, for uh, Dr. O'Donnell. Um, do you think sometimes it's wise to get a second opinion, if you could comment on this during this pandemic? Um, yes, I do. Um, I, you know, I think, uh, you know, very, various people uh, have different ways of looking at things. And so I think it's always, um, you know, it's always a good idea to get a second opinion, especially at the beginning of, of a treatment plan or um, when you're going to change a treatment plan. And uh, you know, I think uh, Cancer Care has some uh, good resources uh, for you to access in terms of who who might be a, uh, where might be a good place to get a second opinion, you know, about uh, what to do with my specific uh, illness. Awesome. Thank you. Thanks so much. And I want to thank our speakers. You've really been quite phenomenal. And in terms of um, the last question, yes, please do contact our oncology social work staff at Cancer Care, and they'd be happy to help you um, about about thinking through sometimes the concept of getting a second opinion. I do want to thank all our speakers. You've been a phenomenal group, I must say. Um, we have covered a lot on this call. Um, this uh, was a very important program to do for veterans living with cancer. We hope to do many more, and so I want to thank you all. Um, I also uh, want to remind you that this is a one-hour program and that um, 
and, in, and I know that there are many more questions in queue uh, and that um, we, so I want to say a few words about that as well. Um, for those of you who had, had the opportunity to ask a question or for those of you who still have a question and haven't asked it yet or heard a question or comment, um, please do um, take your question, your information that you learned from the call today back to your treating healthcare team. They know you the best, of course, and they are most able to help you in any way possible. But they're very, they're very knowledgeable. And your healthcare team consists of many different um, members of that team that could be very, very useful and helpful to you. Um, many of the we had a multidisciplinary team today speaking, and your healthcare team is multidisciplinary as well. And in addition to that, we also know that sometimes you do like to check out other places for information and resources. And a number of organizations have been mentioned on today's program, on the National Cancer Institute, um, a number of different American Society organizations have mentioned that do have resources for you. And again, um, you will be getting um, an evaluation at the end of this program, probably within two days. So it will be probably uh, next week on Tuesday. And the evaluation will include of course, an evaluation, we very much like to hear your comments about the program, but it will also include all of the resources that we are, um, that we have um, available to, um, that we, we've, we've mentioned on today's program and other resources as well. So please do, of course, take advantage of uh, those resources also. And I also, in concluding, I, this is a very challenging time for everyone, both veterans living with cancer and in the context of COVID-19. And so we want you to also know that it is quite normal to feel alone. Also with social isolation, people feel a bit more alone. So we do, and it's normal to feel alone, of course, but we want you to know that you're part of a very large community of support and we're all here to help you. And there are lots of resources out there and you'll be getting a listing of those resources with your evaluation so that you won't, you can again connect up with other resources as well. I want to thank you all for your participation today, and I want to wish you all a very fine day. Thank you all. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop, and you may now disconnect. Everyone, have a great day.